I was astonished. I was at a cocktail party on uh, Tuesday night, and there were 40 or 50 backbenchers there. Um, I felt like a Roman Catholic priest. They were coming up for confessionals with me. I mean, it was really quite extraordinary. <laughs> and I then had lunch yesterday with a Tory MP, and it was mutinous. It was, how do we get rid of him? I, I, I was really quite shocked. So they now see him as a liability, and it kind of means. Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing, and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this week in review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, there's been a bit of a shift in UK politics. I can't remember someone being so popular and then so unpopular so quickly. What do you make of it? And what do you think the implications are going to be for the legislation over the next few years? It's a funny one. Boris, I mean, everything about Boris is funny in a way, isn't it? Um, but, you know, it's really interesting. Late 2018, early 2019, he was one of the most unpopular people <laughs> within the Conservative Parliamentary Party. No time for colleagues, uh, would never cross the tea room to speak to anybody, living in his own little sort of bubble, um, seemed to be aloof, distant, arrogant, and yet, of course, you know, he'd won the mayorship of London twice in a not particularly conservative London. Uh, and once we got rid of Mrs May, or once I got rid of Mrs May, um, he was the obvious person to come in, and to wave the pom-poms around and to say, it's all going to be absolutely marvellous. And whatever he was questioned about detail over Northern Ireland or fishing, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it, it'll all be fine. And kind of everybody wanted to believe it because we'd been through three and a half years of agony uh, with the establishment trying to cancel Brexit. And here was the man, you know, holding the light. Um, and of course they won the election quite comfortably. Um, uh, the truth is, Nick, I've known him 25 years. He's a cheerleader, not a leader. And that's now becoming clear. A government that follows short-term focus groups, a government that's performed more U-turns than any in the history of the United Kingdom. Um, and now the straw that has broken the camel's back, a catastrophic misjudgment over Owen Patterson. What was really interesting about this, it was clear that he hadn't read the report. Just hadn't read the report. It wasn't on the detail at all. Because with Boris, it's all big brushstrokes and no detail. Theresa May was the opposite. She was in the weeds, but could never see the big picture. Um, and it was a catastrophic misjudgment. And in doing this, he's cheesed off, using a polite word here, both wings of his party. The 2019 intakes say, oh my God, here's an old Etonian defending another public school boy. They're these overweight, upper middle class, mid fifties men who represent shire constituencies with 20,000 majorities who don't need to do any work and take on 100,000 pound a year second jobs, which are their priorities. And the 2019 intakes say, hang on guys, we're representing working class communities in the Midlands of the Northeast of England. You know, this is taking the mickey. This is, this is going back to cash for questions, uh, moats being cleaned out, duck houses. They hate it. And they know that their constituents hate it, many of whom, of course, come from old Labour families. And then, remarkably, he's managed to upset the gents of the Shire as well, 
because lots of them will now lose the ability to earn a hundred thousand pound a year as a consultant doing a second job and doing a bit of lobbying on the side. No, not allowed to do lobbying, of course. But so he's managed to upset both wings of the party. And I was astonished. I was at a cocktail party on uh, Tuesday night. And there were 40 or 50 backbenchers there. Um, I felt like a Roman Catholic priest. They were coming up for confessionals with me. I mean, it was really quite extraordinary. <laughs> and I then had lunch yesterday with a Tory MP, and it was mutinous. It was, how do we get rid of him? I, I, I was really quite shocked. So they now see him as a liability. And it kind of means, now look, this could be short term, you may argue. It may all look different in a couple of weeks' time, you can say. But I just feel something fundamental has shifted and changed over the course of the last couple of weeks. This guy doesn't look like a leader. This guy doesn't act like a leader. I mean, goodness me, the way he was dressed at the cenotaph uh, was, was reminiscent of Michael Foot of a donkey jacket. There's just nothing about this is working at all. Nothing that he's doing is even vaguely conservative. Um, so I don't know where we go from here, but I suspect that on both sides of the pond, both here and in America, we now have administrations that are effectively becalmed. Difficult to get radical legislation through, difficult to see any sense of clear direction. And I think we're sort of politically heading for a period of drift. Now, I don't know what that means economically, uh, because I think we, we overestimate the importance of government in business. You know, business gets on, business does things. And what is clear from a UK economic perspective is that, well, inflation, Nick, we've been absolutely right about that for a very long time, and that's coming clear. But equally, you know, you've still got money coming into this country from all over the world. There's still a great deal of confidence in the UK, certainly relative to our European neighbours. So the fact you've got political problems doesn't necessarily mean that we get very bad economics. Um, although the inflationary side of it is difficult. Made me laugh a few years ago, Belgium couldn't form a government. Well, given the way they're set up as a country, I wasn't surprised. No government for 500 days. And everybody in business said, it's great. We're just able to get on with things without government getting in the way. So that's my, I, I think this is a very big story. Uh, and I think you've got a, a really, in terms of being a leader, um, you know, a, a mortally wounded prime minister. Uh, that doesn't mean he can't, you know, limp on the next two or three years but yeah something's changed yeah for many years i've been saying that the best possible result in an election is a hung parliament because then they can't get anything done and if nothing changes for a friend, but we're free market you see we're free marketeers Nick. you know we believe in, we believe in energy enterprise risk-taking um and it was ronald reagan of course wasn't it who said that the worst eight words in the english language were hello i've come from government i'm here to help you yeah, and I think, well, Belgium's might not be the best example, but nevertheless, my worry with that theory right now is that we seem to be at a bit of a crunch point for Brexit and for this Northern Irish Protocol and for this Article 16 story. So if the government's looking shaky and, and that's on the table, then that does become a bit of a worry, or, or should I be worried about that? Well, I think what it means, frankly, is that he's very unlikely to stand up for Northern Ireland with Brussels. A weakened prime minister is more likely to give in. Um, and so Northern Ireland stays where it is, which politically in Northern Ireland is a nightmare because we've seen a couple of buses burnt out over the course of the last couple of weeks. And you know, worries. 
about some form of loyalist resistance. I won't quite use the word terrorism yet, but you know where I'm going. Economically, well, if we're being cynical, Northern Ireland's a very small part of the UK economy. It doesn't, have, you know, the fact is it's tough to get product in. It doesn't have a huge effect on the UK economy overall. Um, so yeah, less likely to stand up to Brussels on Article 16. Um, and perhaps less likely to put in place the kind of legislative changes and supply side reforms that we all want to see from Brexit. So look, you know, we're better off with Brexit than we would have been without it, but we're not just not quite taking advantage of it in the way that we ought. I think that sums it up quite well. Yeah, and a weakened government's less likely to be capable of pushing yeah. that advantage. Let's move on to the story in Gibraltar, because I think this is a symptom of, of what I've been arguing for a long time now. The idea that vaccinations will help us avoid lockdowns in the future, let alone the pandemic, is, is being slowly disproven. And I think Gibraltar is sort of the last to gasp because the vaccination rates in Gibraltar are so extremely high, and yet they're still having this issue. They've cancelled Christmas, according to some of the papers. The focus in Germany and Austria is on the unvaccinated, but in Gibraltar, there aren't enough to do that. So I think Gibraltar's disproven the underlying idea here that vaccines will help us escape. If that's correct, what happens next? Well, look, you know, I am convinced of the evidence. I'm, I'm really convinced of the evidence that if you have the double vaccine and perhaps the booster too, that if you get COVID, you're less likely to get ill or die, seriously ill or die. I mean, I think that is actually quite conclusive. I don't doubt that for a moment. Um, I've never been a, I've never been an anti-vaxxer, whether it's MMR or this. I never have been. What I find monstrous is we are beginning to create a two-tier society. Um, I'm going to dare to call it vaccine apartheid, uh, because that's what's happened in Austria. A third of the adult population of Austria have been locked in their houses and told they cannot live the same lives as everybody else. And I find that monstrous. We've seen 50,000 people leave the care sector in the UK in the last two weeks because they will not have the double jab. As a, and look, it's their life. If the evidence was overwhelming that the unvaccinated are more likely to carry the virus and pass it on to somebody else, there might be an argument for it, but I can't see it. I just can't see it. I keep asking, uh, doing my TV programme, you know, I keep asking so-called experts on this. Even Boris himself said, having the vaccine doesn't stop you catching COVID and doesn't stop you passing on COVID. Now, whether it reduces it, some say it does. I just don't know. But what has happened in Gibraltar is really deeply worrying. I mean, what's happening in Austria is worrying from a sort of human rights point of view. But what's happening in, in Gibraltar is really very, very scary because, as you say, almost total vaccination on the rock, uh, and yet rates you know, absolutely roaring. Um, this is one area in which the British government will do better than the rest of Europe. Whatever our criticisms of Boris Johnson's government's handling of COVID, they've actually applied a lighter touch at every stage than everywhere else. Yeah, I know what's happened in the care sector. I know what's coming for the uh, National Health Service on the 1st of April next year. Um, I don't think they're going to cancel our Christmas. I, I just don't think they are. And I think we've reached a point where we simply wouldn't obey. You know, this has now been two years. Enough is enough. We've just got to learn to live with this thing. But it is, it is disturbing that some of the promises that were made about the vaccine clearly just aren't true.
what I find especially interesting about the whole idea of vaccinations opening up a nation post lockdown, all that sort of thing, is that everywhere that's tried it, it hasn't worked. And yet the politicians continue with this narrative. They continue to say, if vaccination rates reach a certain percent, and it's different everywhere, but if yeah. we reach that percent, it'll all be wonderful and we can open up, even though it's been disproven everywhere. Why is that continuing? It, it just seems so transparently... But it's the, great, look, it's the group think narrative, isn't it? They all get together at the G7 or COP26 and they all agree to do the same thing at the same time in pretty much the same way. Um, it's the way we're led. We don't have leaders with strong individualistic minds anymore. No, it sounds like it's the wrong sort of person to have in charge during a pandemic. Thanks, Nigel, for joining us. And everyone at home, thanks for joining us as well.